Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We're continuing in our series. We're slowly getting towards the end of the book of Mark. Today's part 36. We're going to look today at Yeshua before Pontius Pilate. So turn with me to Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the Torah teachers and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Yeshua, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so. Aren't you going to answer? Uh, See how many things they're accusing you of. But Yeshua made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Yeshua over to them. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Yeshua flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Here in Mark 15, Yeshua is not in front of the religious establishment, but in front now of the political establishment. Uh, He's not in front of the religious leaders, which we saw last week, but this week, now he's in front of the government, uh, the state, the Roman Empire. And so this brings up the question, what is the relationship of church or synagogue to state? What is the relationship of Yeshua to politics? What's the relationship of Messianic Judaism to the secular government? And there are three questions Pilate asks here on the overhead. Uh, He says says to Yeshua, number one, are you the king of the Jews? And the second question, why aren't you fighting back? And then thirdly, he asks the third question to the crowd, what should I do with your king? And so we're going to look at this passage through the lens of these three questions. Uh, and and uh, they, they lead us to three key answers. They'll put on the overhead as well. So the first answer is I'm going to call the ambiguity answer. The second is the revolutionary answer. And the third is the substitutionary answer. The ambiguity, the revolutionary, and the substitutionary answers. So first, the ambiguity answer. Look at Mark 15, verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Now, you've got to keep in mind here that Pilate's not asking Yeshua a theological question at all. He's not asking, are you the prophesied Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures? Not at all. Pilate couldn't care less about that. He doesn't care about Jewish religious questions or the Scriptures. He doesn't care about theological truth versus heresy. All he cares about, all he wants to know is, are you the king of the Jews? Meaning, are you in any way, shape, or form a political leader? Will your movement have any political implications? Will you, as a leader, have any impact 
uh, on the patterns of political power. That's all Pilate cares about. Do you have a political impact on Rome's rule? Are you a political leader that would threaten Rome? Is this a political movement? And we need to see that Yeshua here is deliberately and significantly ambiguous in his answer. In front of the Sanhedrin, when they asked him, are you the Messiah, uh, the king? What did he say? Well, as we saw you here last week, he said, absolutely, yes, I am. Uh, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. Uh, I'm the son of man prophesied in the book of Daniel. I'm, I'm at God's right hand. I'm the king and I'm the judge. He was very clear. But here before Pilate, his answer now in contrast is deliberately ambiguous. In fact, it's even more ambiguous than our English translations indicate. Because literally when he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? All he says is, you say it. With the emphasis on you. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a political leader? Yeshua says, you said it. Now, what's that? <laughs> Do you remember the old rock opera from the 70s, Jesus Christ Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice? Uh, there's a place where in, the, in the rock opera where Pilate's talking to Yeshua, right here is in our passage, and, he, and we put it on the overhead, and he says, we all know that you're news, but are you the king, the king of the Jews? <laughs> and in the rock opera, Yeshua replies, that's what you say. And Pilate, asks, Pilate says, what do you mean by that? That's not an answer. <laughs> and that's right. It's neither a denial nor an affirmation. Or you could say it's both a denial and an affirmation. Yeshua could have said on the one hand, no, 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 I'm not a political leader. You know, I'm not, I'm not into politics at all. I'm a spiritual person. All I do is give people personal peace and happiness in their private personal sphere in their life, in inner life. Uh, and what I'm doing will have no impact at all on the political, social order. But he doesn't say that, does he? And on the other hand, he also doesn't say, yes, of course I'm a political leader. His answer is, I am and I'm not. What I'm doing will have a lot of political ramifications. But I'm not a political leader in your categories. So when Pilate asks are you a political leader? Is this a political movement? The answer is yes and no. And we need to see how Yeshua is being purposely ambiguous here because both extremes uh, are dangerous. We don't want to merge the church and, and, and state. You know, we humans, we do a lousy job uh, when we try to be a theocracy. Uh, and we Jews, we were especially persecuted uh, by the Catholic uh, and Eastern Orthodox state churches in Europe historically, uh, but we don't want to go the other extreme uh, and be isolationists and put our head in the sand and run for the hills and, and the draw uh, like the Essenes did. Uh, that just allows evil people to take over the government uh, and, and dictate ungodly policies, uh, which we see, sadly, in our, in our nation today, uh, where God is being driven out of the public sphere and how important uh, even something as small as local school board elections are. So it's Chaim, if we want to truly follow Yeshua here, we cannot slide off into one extreme or the other. You know, other religions don't have this balance. If you say to Buddha or to Confucius, are you a political leader? The answer is a clear no. 
If you say to Muhammad, are you a political leader? The answer is a clear yes. <laughs> but if you say to Yeshua, are you a political leader? The answer is a clear yes and no. <laughs> now, there's, there's another place uh, where Yeshua is also ambiguous. We looked at this a few weeks, a few months ago, Mark 12, beginning in verse uh, 14. Where he's asked, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay the tax or shouldn't we? And we see Yeshua's response, Mark 12, verse 15. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought him a coin. They asked him. And then he asked them, whose image is this? Uh, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Yeshua said this very famous line. He said to them, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Again, a deliberately ambiguous answer uh, that, 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 they, uh, that we looked at in detail a couple months ago. When Yeshua said, whose image is on the coin and whose inscription? Well, the coin contained a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar or Kaiser or it means, means king. Uh, so what it actually said on the coin was, Tiberius king, the son of God. And it was a claim to absolute allegiance. And we have to keep in mind that at this time, all governments claimed and demanded absolute allegiance. All governments were authoritarian, if not totalitarian. In all nations, the temples and the state mutually supported each other. Government was always done in the name of the gods. Uh, the emperor or the king typically was considered to be a god. There was no idea of a limited state. No idea of a state in which you had human rights or, or, or space for human rights or space for conscience, or, or protest. And now hear me well, Yeshua is the first thinker to ever introduce uh, these concepts of a private sphere, where the state cannot intrude. He said, Caesar's image is on the coin, so pay your taxes to Caesar, but Caesar's power has limits. Render not to Caesar, but to God, the things that are God's. Caesar's image is on the coin, but God's image is stamped on you. You're made in the image of God. So, so God owns you, not Caesar. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. So Yeshua was the first political or philosophic leader to, to ever call for a limited state. Yeshua says, yes, uh, be involved in politics, uh, be engaged to the extent you can, uh, pay your taxes, don't withdraw. But on the other hand, when any government makes totalitarian claims and tries to be big brother uh, and impose its will on your or your family's private life, do not agree to that. Resist. The apostles, when they were threatened by the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, verse 29, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Because when God's law and human, human law contradicts, God comes first. And that was revolutionary. When Yeshua called for a limited state, when he said, be politically devolved, but don't ever allow political power to be ultimate, not in your life, not in societies, when he said that, what was he doing? On the one hand, he was creating a powerful tradition in which believers, because of Yeshua's ambiguity uh, about this, uh, are called to question and resist totalitarian claims, such as we see in, in uh, fascism, Communism, socialism, 
modern day progressivism and authoritarian mandates uh, and edicts that seek to control your everyday life and freedoms in an unconstitutional way. Yeshua created a space for individual conscience uh, and religious freedom and human rights. That's why in Eastern Europe, communism, the totalitarianism of the left, was brought down by believers, by the churches, by the solidarity movement in Poland. And so I believers also, why believers such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II Germany resisted Nazism, the totalitarianism of the right. Why? Why did believers engage in civil disobedience against both the Nazis on the right and the communists on the left? Against both the totalitarianism of the left and right? Because they knew there was a higher authority than the state. God is the ultimate authority. And therefore, it's illegitimate for the state to make totalitarian claims, to tell you how, how to educate your children, or what to put into your body, or, or what views and thoughts are, you're permitted to express. Yeshua said, on the one hand, the state has a legitimate sphere. They do not bear the sword in vain. But don't ever think that, that, that uh, political power is the ultimate power. Don't let any government purport to speak in the name of God. The state is not ultimate. It must answer to God's laws. And, and a great example of this biblical balance is found in Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter uh, from the Birmingham jail. He was in jail for civil disobedience uh, in the 1960s, and he was protesting segregation in the South by protesting the laws peacefully and going to jail for it. Uh, and many people, including many believers at the time, said, how dare you do civil disobedience. If you're a believer, you should be a law-abiding citizen. You shouldn't question the government. You must submit to the government. That's what the Bible says. At Martin Luther King Jr., right out of this teaching of Yeshua here in Mark 15, uh, on the overhead, uh, he says this. You ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact there are two types of laws just and unjust. Well, how does one determine if a law is just or unjust, they ask, you ask. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the law of God. An unjust law is a man-made code that's out of harmony with the moral law of God. But one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Isn't that a great summary? of Yeshua's teaching. On the one hand, be involved. Don't be silent in the face of tyranny and discrimination. Resist totalitarianism. But on the other hand, our civil disobedience must be nonviolent, done in love and with a willingness to suffer for our faith. When Pilate asked Yeshua, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a political leader? Because Yeshua doesn't say yes, what he's actually saying here is, my followers must not try to take power and rulership in my name as if to impose some type of theocracy. We see the results of that attempt to impose theocracy. We see it today in, in, in Islamic states, trying to impose their brand of radical Islam on their people. We saw what it did in, in so-called Christian Europe in the Middle Ages, when church and state combined uh, to persecute the Jews and later to persecute the Puritans and the pilgrims and the nonconformists. We saw it in Nazi Germany and in communist Russia where the state was taken over, where the state took over the church. And in fact, historically, 
the one place in the world today where Yeshua faith, messianic, the messianic faith, is not thriving, the one place in the whole world where it's not thriving today is Europe. Because that's the place where the ruling class historically established state churches. They imposed the very relationship between church and state that Yeshua was opposed to. And because of that, today there is a deadness and a stagnation of Christianity in Europe. And Yeshua, he was dealing with these same two extremes in his own day. First, there were the Essenes. The Essenes said, withdraw. You know, don't pay your taxes. Don't be involved politically. Run off into the wilderness. Don't get involved in society. Don't stay and fight. Don't, don't be in the world at all. Don't try to be salt and light. Just retreat uh, and be holy. Don't get tainted by involvement with all that political stuff. It's so impure. That was the extreme isolationism of the Essenes. On the other hand, the other extreme were the, were the zealots. The zealots were this violent, militant group that advanced armed revolt. Uh, they were fanatical, they were tyrannical in their own right. Uh, they said, take power and rule in God's name. And when they took power in around 66 AD in Jerusalem, it was an utter disaster. Uh, they imposed a dictatorship. Uh, they killed uh, hundreds of thousands of their own fellow Jews uh, who wouldn't uh, tow their party line. They revolted against Rome, uh, and it ended in 70 AD with Rome destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, slaughtering millions of our people, exiling the rest, uh, many of whom were sold uh, into slavery. And Yeshua is saying, on the one hand, I want my followers to resist totalitarianism. But on the other hand, not to put your hope and faith in political power. That's not the way you bring in the kingdom of God. Yeshua was saying, I don't want you to withdraw, but I also don't want you to think that political power is the way to make this a biblical God-fearing nation. So, Yeshua, are you a political leader? Yes and no. If you say no, he's not a political leader, he's just a spiritual leader, you don't understand at all the radical political rearrangements that happen when believers vibrantly and consistently live their lives out in the world uh, being actively in the world, although not of it. For example, it was believers behind the abolition movement in the 1800s that resulted in the end of slavery. But on the other hand, if you say, yes, he's a political leader, then you're in danger of saying there's only one particular biblical blueprint for how government must go. And Yeshua says, don't make that mistake. Don't be seduced into thinking that political power is the ultimate power. That was the mistake of Rome, the mistake of the zealots, the mistake of the medieval Catholic Church. That's not the biblical model. That's not the ultimate power. Yeshua says political power is wholly inadequate for the enormous changes that I'm going to be bringing into this world. So is Yeshua leading a political movement? Yes and no. And if it's too yes or too no, we're in trouble. So that's point number one, the ambiguity answer. So then, how does the gospel, how does Yeshua faith, Messianic faith, change the culture uh, and change the, the social order? And that brings us to point number two, why Yeshua doesn't fight back, and what I'm calling uh, the revolutionary answer. Pilate sees Yeshua refusing to pick up the sword, refusing to take power and resist. And look at Mark 15, verse 3. The chief priest accused Yeshua of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. 
Pilate's saying, they're trying to kill you. You know, they're railroading you. Look what they're accusing you of. Look at all these charges. Aren't you going to fight back? What's your counter strategy? Pilate was a man of this world. He was trying to figure out what Yeshua was going to do next. Now look at Yeshua's answer, Mark 15, 5. But Yeshua still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. <laughs> Yeshua's silence fulfills the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. Yeshua made no reply, and Pilate is amazed. Now, in Greek, this word amazed is a positive word. Pilate wasn't just saying, you idiot, why won't you answer? <laughs> he was not amazed like that, no. The word used here has a connotation of wonder and marvel. Pilate saw something that Yeshua was doing, and it amazed him. He, he was full of wonder and marvel at it. I suggest what he saw was the contrast between Yeshua and his enemies. On the one hand, his enemies were frantic. Uh, they were afraid that he was going to get off. Yeshua was totally calm. On the overhead, also, his enemies are trying to use power uh, to harm him. But in contrast, Yeshua is laying down his power to forgive his enemies. On the overhead, this is astounding. Uh, because, every rev every, because every revolution that's ever happened in the past has happened like this. You take power and you exclude or destroy your enemies. But Yeshua is about to start a revolution through loving his enemies and forgiving his enemies, a totally opposite paradigm from this world. Now, these two things we see in Yeshua, uh, this new personal peace uh, and this new pattern for, for using your power, they can, this came into his followers and enabled them to turn the world upside down. In the first two to three centuries after Yeshua, his followers, following his example in these two ways, uh, of love and forgiveness, of personal peace, and of sacrificially serving others, laying down your life for others, Messianic believers by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, went out into the Roman society and changed the entire social order. And, it's, and, and for a great historical account of this, I want to recommend uh, Rodney Stark's book called The Rise of Christianity. Now, he's not a believer. He's a, he's a secular historian. Uh, but in this book, he's asking the question, how was it that the original Messianic movement was so effective in changing the ancient Greco-Roman pagan world? Huge changes happened. For example, in most cities of the Roman Empire, the ratio of males to females was 140 males to 100 females. Do you know why? Female infanticide, which is perfectly legal in the Roman Empire. When baby girls were born, they were often just thrown out. The husbands, the fathers did it. They said, girls, you gotta feed them, you gotta clothe them. When they grow up, it's not, they're not worth it. And they threw them out like so much trash. Killed them. Left them on the edge of the city to die. And it was perfectly legal. But the believers totally rejected that. And they, by the way, they also totally rejected and condemned abortion. Women in pagan society were second-class citizens. Women had to be sexually chaste and pure and, and faithful to their husbands. But, but there was a double standard uh, for the men. The husbands were allowed to have as many mistresses uh, as they wanted. 
Yeshua followers said none of that anymore. Both men and women had to be celibate before marriage and faithful in marriage according to clear biblical commands. And the believers condemned abortion and infanticide. Also in the Roman Empire, if you were a married woman and your husband died and you were below a certain age, you had to remarry within two years. Uh, for the, because they said there's no particular reason for a woman to live unless she's married. So it was required to remarry whether you wanted to or not within two years. So all state aid was, was, was eliminated from your life and cut off. But the believing Messianic community supported widows so they didn't have to remarry if they didn't want to. And with all these reforms uh, and radical new positions, women flocked to Christianity, uh, to the Messianic faith. They flocked. Uh, they saw a new dignity for themselves, uh, a new humanity, uh, a new affirmation uh, within Yeshua faith that the world had never seen. Even Judaism didn't have this, where you could divorce your wife, uh, according to Jewish law, if she burnt your toast. But Yeshua followers said no. Yeshua said, uh, uh, in general, a man could, could divorce his wife only for sexual immorality. And believers' views on abortion, infanticide, sexual morality, marriage, remarriage, divorce, the dignity of women, it began to totally remake the social order throughout the Roman Empire. Here's another example, in addition to women's rights, of how believers remade Roman society. Yeshua followers loved the poor. Loved the poor. For example, we have a letter that's come down to us from Julian, one of the Roman empires, one of the Roman emperors who, who hated believers, try, was trying to stamp them out. He was very frustrated how fast Yeshua faith was growing throughout his Roman empire. He didn't know how to stop it. And one, in one of his letters, he writes this to a friend. We'll put it on the overhead. He writes, our religion isn't prospering, but the Christian religion is growing and growing. Why don't we realize how much Christianity success is due to their radical care for the poor. Christians don't just take care of their own poor, but they take care of our pagan poor as well. Whereas it's obvious to every, for everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. Julian's complaining, the emperor's complaining, why can't we pagans take care of, the, of our poor the way the Yeshua followers do? In fact, they don't just take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor as well. Uh, they're, they're promiscuous in their charity to the poor. Jews take care of the Jewish poor. Greeks take care of the Greek poor. Romans take care of the Roman poor. But these Messianics, they take, they take care of everybody. And then they bring them into their community. And get this, they actually mix the races. Because they say we're all made in God's image. We're all, we're all actually from the, oh, from the same race. The human race. Uh, and we're all sinners. Uh, and they say, we're all saved by Yeshua's grace. And so there's no longer any Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. We're all one in Messiah Yeshua. And then lastly, Rodney Stark points out that not only was there this radical concern for the poor and upholding the dignity and the equality of women uh, and strict sexual ethics and, and condemnation of, of abortion and infanticide, but there's also the self-sacrificial care for the sick and the ill and those facing the plague and infectious diseases. How relevant is that? Now, by the way, as a side note, note how this defies conventional political categories. Believers 
in the Roman Empire, they were against abortion and infanticide and sexual immorality and easy divorce uh, and men being allowed to have mistresses. All that sounds kind of conservative, right? But the believers, they were also radically in favor of helping the poor and giving charity and, and medical aid, in favor of mixing the races and the social classes and the free and slave. Some would say that sounds liberal. Is Yeshua faith political? Yes and no. Is Yeshua faith conservative? Yes and no. Is it liberal? Yes and no. Do you see how the revolutionary ambiguity is of a biblical gospel faith? It defies conventional secular political categories. And if a candidate today ran on these principles, do you see how he or she could attract support from every group? Just a thought. Let me give you a bit more detail uh, on this last distinctive of helping the sick and the dying. In the first two centuries after Yeshua, there, was this tremendous, there were tremendous public health problems throughout the Roman Empire, especially in the major cities, uh, in the urban centers. When the plagues and the pandemics uh, would hit in these crowded cities, disease and death would spread like wildfire. In some cases, a quarter to a third of the population of the big cities would die. And people then understood the concept of contagion. So when the plagues hit, the people headed off for the hills and they left their sick friends and neighbors and family members literally in the streets. But the Yeshua followers, the Messianic believers, were different, radically different. They, they became, in essence, the first public health movement. Rodney Stark, in his book, he points out that when everyone else was abandoning the cities, Believers decided they were going to stay in the cities and deal with this public health crisis by serving and ministering to the sick. They took care of the sick despite the danger. And in the overhead, here's what we read from an eyewitness account. Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty. They never spared themselves but thought only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministered to them in Messiah. And many died, uh, for they were infected by their neighbors. But when they departed life, they did so serenely and cheerfully, accepting their pains. Why? Don't you see? First, Yeshua gave them that, that personal peace, so much personal peace and contentment uh, that, that their unbelieving neighbors didn't have, that they could handle the loss of their comfort. They could, they could handle all these losses they were incurring, the loss of their safety, they could handle the loss of their money, they could handle even the loss of their life if it meant pouring themselves out for the needs of their neighbors. The early believers looked at the social needs, they looked at the sick, they looked at, at the poor, uh, they looked at the needs of the people around them, and they poured themselves out. And one of the reasons was that this new, person, was this new personal inner peace Yeshua gave them. But also because of this new attitude towards power uh, that he taught and modeled. The early believers did not idolize power. On the overhead, they looked at the sick, the women, the children, the slaves, the poor, and they loved them. And they drew them in. And that changed society. Changed it radically. Remember, only about 1% of 1% of all people typically get involved in politics. So what about the rest of us, 99.9%? In the first few centuries after Yeshua, they were all doing political change. 
Because by their radical lifestyle and ministry uh, and commitment to helping others, they were changing social arrangements. Uh, They were changing the way power operated in the Roman Empire. Yeshua, are you a political leader? Yes and no. So now on the overhead, that's the ambiguity answer and the revolutionary answer, which enable believers to have such an impact on society. So now finally, number three. How do you get what the early Messianic Yeshua followers had? How do we begin to replicate uh, the influence on society that they had? And that leads us to Pilate's question. What should I do with this king of the Jews? And the substitutionary answer. Actually, Pilate asked a three-part question. Should I release him? Why not? What has he done? Pilate asks, what should I do with him? With Yeshua, your king of the Jews? And the answer of the crowd was this. Substitution. When Pilate says, what should I do with Yeshua? The crowd says, you've got a guilty guy here, Barabbas, an insurrectionist, guilty of murder, uh, and you've got an innocent. You've got, you've, got the, you've got the guilty and you've got the innocent. Uh, look at the last question Pilate asked the crowd. Mark 15, verse 14. Uh, for Yeshua. Um, why? He, said, he asks, you know, what, what crime ha- has he committed? And, and uh, what has he done? Notice the crowd ignores the question. Look at Mark 15, 14. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Why? What has this man done? Never mind. Just crucify him. Don't confuse us with the facts. Just do as we say. The crowd never answers the question. In a sense, they're admitting we know he's innocent, but we want him dead anyways on the overhead. Notice they asked Pilate to free the guilty uh, and kill the innocent one in his place. What is that? Substitution. Here's the innocent. Here's the guilty. Switch them. Substitute them. Uh, for the innocent, Yeshua, where the guilty should be. But the guilty, Barabbas, where the innocent should be. Take the innocent one and punish him. Take the punishable one and treat him as if he's innocent. Substitution. And that's the gospel. Indeed, how much more clear could Mark be uh, to say, this is what Yeshua's death was all about. Yeshua on the cross was taking your place. He was taking our guilt upon himself because he's the suffering servant. Uh, he's the young poor scapegoat. Uh, uh, and our sin, he placed our sins upon himself. And, he was, and he's treated the way we should have been treated. And he died that we might live. He was bound that we might go free. And that's the answer to the question, how do you get the power to be agents of social change the way the first century Messianic believers were? Because the secret was that the original Messianic believers did not look to Yeshua just as their example. They didn't just say, oh, he died for others, so we should do likewise. Uh, He loved others, so so we must do as well. He gave up his power, so so let's do the same. He forgave his enemies, so now that's our role model. No, that alone would never have been enough. Trying to live up to that standard uh, in and of itself would just crush you. You could never live up to that. It does not empower you. That's salvation by human effort. All by itself, it's an impossible standard. But when these original Yeshua followers saw Yeshua substituting himself for them, that's what changed them. 
Now, there's one more detail I left off uh, from Rodney Stark's account of how the early believers gave their lives in caring for the sick. So uh, I'm going to put this on the overhead. Here's a first-hand account. Heedless of danger, the believers took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministered to them in the name of Yeshua. And many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. Many believers, in nursing and caring their neighbors, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The Messianic believers said, if I take care of my sick neighbor, he or she might survive, but I might die. I might die that my neighbor might live. But wait a minute. That's what Yeshua did for me. And they willingly did it. At the center of the gospel is not a man who rides in on a war horse and takes power. No. Just the opposite. Yeshua lost his power. He laid down his life. Uh, he, tra he, he transferred our death to himself. Our sickness to himself. Our evil to himself. And when the believer said, the only way I can help the poor become rich is if I become poor. Only way I can help the sick become well is if I become sick. The only way I can help the dying to life uh, is if I die. They said, Yeshua did that for me as my substitute. And they gladly laid down their lives. Truly understanding and embracing Messiah's substitutionary atonement will radically transform your life. So I want to close uh, by looking again at Yeshua's substitution for Barabbas from our passage. Now, did you know Barabbas' real name, his full name? His, Barabbas' full name was Yeshua Bar Abba. He was also named Yeshua. And his last name, Bar Abba, means son of the father. So we have two Yeshuas, two sons of the father. We have a real one and a counterfeit one. Satan always tries to counterfeit the things of God. Pilate offers the people Barabbas, this insurrectionist uh, who wanted to give them political freedom, uh, and Yeshua who wanted to give them spiritual freedom. The crowd chose Barabbas. They did not want the true son of the father. They wanted a different Yeshua. They wanted a Yeshua they could live with, a Yeshua who would make them feel guilty, uh, a Yeshua of this world, and for the last 2,000 years, likewise, our world has been crying for a different Yeshua. One more like them, not the real one. The world does not want the biblical Yeshua, who, unlike Barabbas, uh, is a true revolutionary, but not the kind the world expects, because ultimately Barabbas is you and me. When Yeshua was killed for the very sins that Barabbas was guilty of, and Barabbas is freed, Mark is trying to show us that we are Barabbas. Now imagine literally being Barabbas. Uh, you're in jail. You're waiting to die. You hear the crowd outside yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You assume they're talking about you. Then the soldiers come in, and you're sure this is it. But then they, they suddenly free you, and you stumble out into the courtyard. You see Yeshua being condemned in your place, bearing your cross, having your nails pounded into his arms and feet and dying your death.